It's Tuesday, June 16th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, it's Abby Mallon. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're going to talk about the business of exercise. We are going to dip into the full mailbag, but we are going to start with retail because retail sales for the month of May came in nearly 18% higher than the previous month. That is a record. Even if you back out uh, auto sales, that's also a record. Um, although every once in a while we talk about businesses that you know maybe like a struggling retailer and they had a good quarter and we talk about their same store sales growth and we say, yeah, it was off of a low base. This is great to see, but this is in comparison to the retail sales we saw in April, which were quite low. Right. Right. I do think we should make that caveat, right? So it is still below COVID or pre-COVID levels. So spend was about $486 billion in May and spend in February, so pre-COVID, pre-shutdown, um, the spend was about $527 billion. So we are low on a historical looking back perspective, but it is marginally better. <laughs> Marginally better, although you know there there are a couple of categories that even if you go back pre-pandemic, you compare them to, you know what we saw in January and February, they're up solidly and not surprisingly, you know it's not a big list, but not surprisingly, right. e-commerce just continues right. to be incredibly strong. Even again, not just compared to April, but even compared to pre-pandemic months. That is true. Online sales were up almost 78% in May, according to Adobe Analytics. And I think, you know, that number makes sense. And I think it's something that we're going to continue to see even as um, stores open up and retail footprints reopen. I think we're going to continue to see a fair amount of online sales. We've talked about this before with the major retailers like Target and Walmart, but I'm curious if you think, you know, both of those businesses have done such a great job with um, pickup, um, with basically just enabling, sort of syncing what they're doing with online, with the physical stores. Um, I have to say, I've, I've been impressed, particularly with Target, just as a, as a customer, what I've seen with their ability to. You know, uh, there have been times over the past couple of months where I've gone online, I'm looking for something, and they're like, "Well, it's not at the location closest to you, but it's at this one a little bit." For, you know, and they're great. Right. They're, they've really done a great job. I'm curious if you think we're going to be seeing that across the board. If that is now table stakes for all retailers, like it's not just you have to have e-commerce, you have to have it synced with your physical stores so that you can enable pickup. Right. I mean, I think you're getting to even a bigger problem here, which is which is really your customer service management. And so traditionally with retail brick and mortar stores, you find someone in the store, right? But as things shift more online, um, we've seen a lot of retailers speak out about that challenge. So it's Macy's, Wayfair, Best Buy, Ikea, Lululemon. They've all said that they've had um, pretty significant issues in terms of customer service and customer relationship management. And so Salesforce, who is one of the largest sellers of customer relationship management software, said their weekly customer service chatbot sessions for retailer and consumer goods clients have increased 4x since the end of February. So I think, I mean, again, right, that number is staggering, right? That's, so, <laughs> I, I, I knew you were going to go with a big number. I didn't think it was going to be a 4x number. Right, right. I mean, I think the way consumers have shopped is going to change. I also think the more that we shop online, there's statistics, and I think we're going to get better about this as a as a um, 
community or as a country or whatever, however you may want to phrase it. But as people shop online, traditionally, what we've seen is higher rates of return, particularly in apparel, right? So it's, you try something, you don't really like it, you send it back, whatever. Um, for brick and mortar stores and traditional retail plays, that poses a lot of issues with inventory management. Um, just logistically, it's a problem. So I think, I think you're right. I think what Target, I think Target is on the forefront of being sort of logistically better. But I think all retail stores still have a pretty long way to go before we can say that we're safely in the woods. But I guess I would add, I mean, I think the bottom line of this report and the, the thing that people are anchoring to, the thing to get excited about here is that um, any increase in consumer spending is it reflects an increase in consumer confidence, right? And so people are or this data would suggest that people are less worried about losing jobs um, and less concerned about saving more than they have in the past. And they're and that's probably encouraged by the recent job report. Um, but generally speaking, we're starting to see a little bit of economic recovery. It might be early. It might not last, but it is encouraging data. Let's move on to the business of exercise. 24-Hour Fitness is one of the largest chain of fitness centers in the U.S. They've got more than 400 locations across America. And that is about to change in a big way because 24-Hour Fitness is closing 130 locations and filing for bankruptcy. This is a privately owned company, Abby. But when I saw this story, I immediately thought of Planet Fitness. Right, um, right. And I was surprised. Um, to see that shares of Planet Fitness are only down 5% year to date. Right. That seems like a massive way. How, how is that, as we've seen the rise of Peloton, both as a business and as a stock, are you surprised that Planet Fitness is only down 5% year to date? It's a fair question. I mean, in that filing for 24-hour fitness, they did write, if not for COVID-19 and the devastating effects, the company would not have had to file. So certainly this is uh, a result of this pandemic and of these gyms being shut down. And I think it, I think it is a valid question for Pan Planet Fitness, right? So um, certainly as things are opening up again, we just talked about it, it's, it's positive, but I don't think consumer... Con Consumer confidence to spend money is not necessarily equivalent to consumer confidence being feeling great about getting back to a gym. And so um, even if they are able to reopen their doors, I would be, um, if I were a shareholder, I would be watching to see their churn rates. I think the one thing that Planet Fitness does have going for it that I think is, is encouraging, they did put all of their memberships on hold while their clubs are closed, which I think is really positive. Um, and, you know, their memberships are pretty inexpensive. So they're about $10 a month. They have more than 14 million members and they target the 80% of the U.S. population who's over 14 and are not um, avid gym goers or avid fitness people. So it's sort of a low cost approach in an industry with a lot of options. And I think because they're so low cost, there might be some ability to remain kind of sticky. Even if people don't actually show up, they might pay that membership fee versus something, you know, if the fee was much higher, I'd be a little bit more concerned that people would be ready to cut the payment um, quicker. So I think there's a little bit of leeway with Planet Fitness, but I think certainly if people aren't comfortable going back to the gym for, you know, 
six months or a year, I think it's a it's a valid question, right? You know, it's interesting because until you just said what you said, I hadn't really thought about uh, sort of the offerings at Planet Fitness because certainly there are fitness centers and gyms that offer a lot of classes. Some of those classes involve a sort of like circuit training where it's like, you know, right. you got 15 people and you're going to 15 stations. Like, I don't, I don't see how those types of classes continue. Right. I, I do think um, maybe a Planet Fitness is in better uh, shape, for, uh, no pun intended, right. just because it's much more straightforward. It's much more, you're going to use this machine, you're going to use this one treadmill, you're going to wipe it down, or we're going to have a staff member wipe it down before and right. after. Um, and there's not as much sharing. It's, you know, they're not as dependent on, no, this is a spin cycle class and we need to fill it with as many bikes as possible. Like, right. you know, so they're going to be spin classes. They're just going to be a lot fewer people in them. Right. I think, you know, that is a good point. Right. And I think also, you know, they, they have rolled out an app. They do have, um, virtual workouts for their members. They're, they're doing everything right. I just think the future outlook of fitness, um, is certainly questionable. And I mean, you mentioned those circuit work training. That's what I do. Actually, I go to something called F45. And so you rotate through all of these stations and my gym is so closed, but they are making a bunch of adjustments when we reopen. And one of the things is in a class that normally has 30 people, they're limiting it to 10 and we're no longer rotating through. You just use your weights and your equipment in your spot for the entire session. Um, but I have to think, you know, that pressures margins, right? In a class where you normally have 30 people, if you can only fit 10, that's challenging, right? Especially in a high traffic area like DC, where everyone is trying to get in their workout. I go at 6 a.m. So, and those classes fill up within maybe two hours of being posted online. So I don't know how you serve the same amount of people when you need exponentially more space. Well, and that's the thing that, uh, you know, from a customer standpoint, like if you're still able to get in a class, ideally you want it at the time you want, but if you're able to get in a class, you make the adjustment and there are fewer people in there. So it's, right. it's if it works out timing-wise, it's better for the customer, as you say, far worse from a business standpoint for the gym. Right, right. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Question from Luke Frandrup in Minnesota. Luke writes, I'm a longtime Fool reader, subscriber, and podcast fan. My question is, is there a metric which incorporates TAM, Total Addressable Market, to provide some sense in how far a stock slash company could run? This would be especially useful for smaller companies to get a better feel for risk, reward, and the potential long-term upside. If there isn't, do you have an equation that would provide some of the same insights? Thanks for all that you do. And he signs it, a Packers fan in Minnesota. Oh boy, that's 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 like being a Yankee fan in the middle of Boston. But um, uh, great question. And um, you know, Abby, you and I were chatting this morning. Total addressable market is one of those phrases that gets thrown around a lot by analysts and by companies. And I know I've seen t situations where a company will come out and say, yeah, our total addressable market is, and they throw out some enormous number. And I just sort of like do a double take and think, wait, right. is it really that? Like, like how, how should people think about what actually is a total addressable market? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. Um, and to some degree, you are right. Sometimes companies will disclose it, but I always try to take those with a grain of salt. And so unfortunately for this listener, um, the answer is generally there is not a metric that you can reliably find across all industries, all companies. Um, you you have to do the legwork here. And so um, I think this is really where we talk about equity research and specifically with valuation. Sometimes it's more of an art than a science. And so this is one of those places where um, it is up for, certainly it's the future, right? So it, it's unknown and, and there are ways to estimate and we can be as precise as we want, but you're never going to be fully right. But um, generally speaking, the way I tend to think about this is, um, like I mentioned, companies will usually give you an estimation. So check the S1 filing, maybe in their 10K. A lot of times it's in their investor presentation. Um, you can also look at competitors. Sometimes competitors will break it down more clearly. Um, but you're looking for maybe what the co company defines as that, right? Um, and then I would compare it to your own sort of gut check. So what I like to do is think about, start by taking the total addressable market and then define it as specifically as possible. So um, a company that I like to do this with, because I, when you talk about companies that filed and you were like, what is that figure? Um, Uber filed that their total addressable market was the entire world. I'm not joking. That was literally in the filing. <laughs> and, and to me that, that's not helpful, Come right? On. It's too big. It's too big and it doesn't make any sense, right? So you have to think about, you know, um, if you ran this this product, right? So what they do, they provide uh, more or less short-term trips. So the majority of their trips are three miles or less. Um, and so if you think about the people who take three mile or less trips, the people who don't have cars, uh, the places within accessibility, in, within what uh, regions or what in geographic ranges. Um, you also have to think about, you know, who's using this. So at what price point, um, what socioeconomic status levels you're looking at. So the more specifically you can define it, the better. Um, and then to get those figures, you want to consult outside sources. So make sure that you're double checking and don't just take, um, you know, populations within metro regions with incomes above X. Don't just find it from one source and take that gut check that across as many sources as you can find. And so um, once you have that total addressable market as a whole, what you want to think about is a reasonable estimate to how much of the market you think one company can grab. So um, 100% is almost assuredly impossible. I can't think of a company that has 100% of any market. Um, economics don't support that, right? If a, if a market is really big and really profitable, other people are going to flood the market. So um, don't ever assume 100%. But the amount that you assume can vary by industry. So um, what you're looking at is fragmentation within a market. And so you want to look at the largest incumbent players to see how fragmented that is. And so um, one that I know off the top of my head, apparel is a highly fragmented market. And no surprise to no one. And our largest apparel um, retailer in the U.S. is Walmart, and they have about 7% market share. So anytime you're looking at the apparel market within the U.S., don't ever assume that someone's going to get more than 7% because Walmart is so large geographically, their footprint's so big, they're so well-known, et cetera, et cetera. So um, always scale it appropriately to that. 
So once you figure out how big the market is and what percentage you want them to capture, your third step is to estimate how quickly you believe the company can grow to achieve that level. Um, so again, you're not ever going to be right. You just want to be reasonable and defensible. So again, I mentioned, you know, it's more of an art than a science, but that is really the process and how I think about it. The only two things I'll add are um, you want to be particularly careful when it's and you reference this with I didn't know that about Uber. That's a that's a gutsy move, you know, <laughs> to, uh, in your initial filing to just be like, yeah, it's the whole planet. Yeah, that's our market. Um, but I think you want to be particularly careful when companies are filing to go public because they want to make those numbers look as good as possible. Right. Um, and the other thing is, you know, to Abby's point about checking other sources, this is another situation where I feel like trade media publications can be particularly helpful. So it's not just, you know, the Bloomberg or the Wall Street journals of the world. It's the, you know, it's the niche media, um, whether it's apparel, whether it's restaurants, retail, whatever, um, that those can be good sources of information to sort of um, balance off of. Definitely. I appreciate you being here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you do, uh, based solely on what you hear or, or what you do, really. Just do your research. You know what I'm talking about. I haven't had enough coffee. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.